Well, good evening. Glad to see you guys. Things have been really dull in the Middle East this week. I don't know what we're going to talk about. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are here. This is a five-week series on the biblical foundations of the modern Middle East. And we're doing two things. Uh, obviously, we're taking your questions. By the way, I want to mention, a lot of you asked good questions last week that some of them will be answered just in the course of, of tonight. But if not, please text again. We're going to talk about, uh, we'll do a review here in just a second, but we're going to spend two weeks on Islam because it's fairly complex. And so between tonight and next time, I think a lot of things are going to really start clicking between the interactions of the Arab nations and Islam, and we'll particularly talk about radical Islam uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But our general overall goal is to talk about the modern Middle East on two levels. One, the general geopolitical level, the ethnic issues, the economic issues, the religious issues, but then also, and this will particularly become important in the fifth lesson, where we tie everything together and talk about what does the future hold, you'll begin to see how uh, there's something more going on here than just the vagaries of history, empire building and wars and peace, and then, oh, no, it's not peace. There's, there are bigger things happening here that the God of history is actually working in this situation. So we started out, uh, let's do a little bit of a review because our process has been this. We want to look at the individual players. We'll go back in history and trace how we got here. And then we'll know all the players and their points of view. And then we can put this together. And a lot of things uh, that seem a little confusing will start to make more sense anyway of why the different players are acting the way they are. We started with uh, the star of this show, uh, Israel. And we talked about the current state of Israel. You'll, this is a ma basically a map of modern Israel. They have enemies without, and they have territories within that are populated by Palestinians. A lot of Muslims, a lot of Arabs, basically the Palestinian territories. The disputed areas are the Golan Heights in the north, the West Bank on the east, and the Gaza Strip. We did have one question last time about the political uh, ties between the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and they are politically in separate, but there's some sympathy. Hamas, which is a Sunni radical organization, and we'll talk about that some in our lesson, rules the Gaza Strip. The Palestinians uh, in the West Bank are ruled differently. It's a, it's a different confederation. However, those peoples feel a certain sense of kinship as all being Palestinians, but they are uh, ruled as different territories. For example, when you go to Israel, it's really not that big a deal to go into the West Bank, and it's, it's not that hard. You're going to go through a checkpoint. You're going to get some uh, surly-looking Palestinians who you know, act like they don't like you very well, but you can go in, you can come out. Gaza Strip, it's another issue. It's another issue. It's just a different environment. But that's Israel's situation, and we talked about Israel's motivation historically is largely shaped by a constant struggle for existence. And so Israel's motivation in almost any situation comes down to what do we need to do to survive as a nation. We also then moved on to a separate group of people. We talked about then the Arab peoples. This is the uh, Arab League. There are 22 nations that band together that are, are culturally or ethnically Arab. And we talked about the history of that. It's a little separate from the history of Islam. 
We'll talk about Islam in just a minute. But these are all culture. These are Arabic-speaking countries. They were all conquered early on when the spread of Islam, when it came out of Saudi Arabia. So they're not all necessarily ethnically Arab, but they're part of the Arabic culture and part of the Arabic speaking. So this is the Arab League. We talked about their reasons for the anger against Israel and against the Western world. We talk about, first of all, because the Arabs see themselves as descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's first son, and the Jews see themselves as the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's second son, but the one the Bible says is, is the promise is given to. So the Arabs think of themselves as having a right to the land of Palestine or the land of Israel. So there's this ethnic conflict there. Also because of some things that happened in the 20th century, we talked about World War I, the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, how the Arabs were promised that they would basically seriously be able to rule the whole Middle East, and then they were told, oops, no, we're not, we have other plans, you've been double-crossed. And so the Arabs feel like that Israel, the Jews, got land that was promised to them, that's true, but that uh, they also had a right to it, and there's a huge distrust of the Western colonial powers. And so the relationship since World War II, since the uh, institution of the Jewish state has not been good between, for example, the United States and the Arab nations. Uh, here's in 1967, you remember the Six-Day War, the Arab nations uh, were on the verge of trying to destroy Israel. This is kind of interesting because it sets the tone of Arab feelings. These are some of the orders to the Egyptian forces who were getting ready to invade to destroy Israel. Uh, the eyes of the world are upon you in your most glorious war against the Israeli aggressors. They understand Israel as being the outsiders. They're the aggressors. They're occupying Arab land. I mean, that's their point of view. To recapture the rights of the Arab nation, the Arab people, and to reconquer the robbed land of Palestine by the power of your weapons and the will of your faith. And so their attitude in these wars, Israel's is, this is our God-given land. We have a historic right to the land. We're fighting for our survival. Arab point of view is the Western powers have propped up Israel and they have stolen our land. It's our land historically, all the way back to Abraham, and we've not been treated well. That's why, for example, in the Arab world, tomorrow reminds me, 9-11, uh, you know, think back 13 years ago on 9-11, when you see radical Islam striking against the United States in the capitals of these Arab nations. Not that all of these nations, in fact, when we get into this, you'll see, all of these nations do not support what you would think of as radical Islam. Nevertheless, there were celebrations in the capitals of all these uh, countries. Why? Part of that is Islam, but part of that is this historic enmity against the Jews and against the Westerners. So I want you to understand it's not all just, it's not as simple as Islam versus Christianity, Islam versus the Jews. There's a lot of history just with the Arab nations as well. So anger, uh, a, a sense of not getting what they have deserved. So in this lesson, I wanna talk about Islam and the Muslim world. So watch these two maps for just a second. This is the Arab world, and by the way, these are all Muslim nations, but now I'm going to zoom back out and I want to show you the Muslim world, much bigger. See the idea? So the Arab nations 
are Muslim, but the Muslim world is far bigger than just the Arab nations. So this is a map today of nations that are predominantly Muslim. And I'd like to talk about this Muslim world. There are 57 different nations, 22 nations in the Arab League, 57 nations in the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So I want to highlight one other thing from Israel's point of view. It was bad enough in our last lesson when I showed you Israel's neighborhood and they've got 22 Arab nations around them. Now look at this picture. Israel is right in the middle of all that green, right? So not only is it historically unlikely that Israel is still there, their future prospects aren't good. If this were one of those board games, the game of risk, where you sort of play these little wars and you move your pieces around, you would not bet on whoever had Israel in this situation. So this gets even more complex when you add in uh, the Islamic world. Uh, I also pulled out a, there was a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal last week by a Jewish organization. And uh, I don't think the New York Times agreed to carry this. Actually, I put a little pic here. I don't know how well you can see it. This is a full page ad the face of radical Islam. And this Jewish organization, because as I've told you before, most Europeans think Israel is the problem with world peace. The UN resolutions overwhelmingly condemning Israel. Israel's striking back with this idea of this is what radical Islam is. You see ISIS, uh, the beheading of the two journalists. You see Hamas that governs the uh, Gaza Strip, uh, lined some people up, this is a, just a, two or three weeks ago, lined some people up who were considered collaborators and shot them on the street. And so this is Israel trying to you know, confront world opinion and basically say, look, you've got Israel on the one hand, and there are disagreements here, but this is the face of radical Islam. So I'd like to spend some time talking about Islam and all of its complexity and where it comes from and what are the forces that are driving Islam? Not just the radical Islam, because there are a couple of really good questions. One is, what is the significance of the idea of a caliphate? And I'd like to answer that historically from Islam. And the other is, is historically and textually, is Islam inherently a violent religion? In other words, are the radicals right, or are the, quote, peaceful Muslims right? And so let's go back and let's trace that so we can see some of the tensions that are going on inside Islam today. So let's step back in history a little bit. We're going to go back to the Arabian Peninsula. This is Saudi Arabia. The Arabian Peninsula, and we're going to go back to 570 A.D. So this is 570 years after the time of Jesus Christ. So the Jews have been around, Old Testament's around, the Christians have been around. The Christians are, have gone through a lot by 570 A.D., so the New Testament is put together. You can buy it at, at Mardell's, you know, in Mecca in 570 A.D. And onto this scene comes a man named Muhammad. Muhammad, and I'm not going to give you, I'm trying to weed this down to give you just the salient details instead of everything, but I want to give you some key things here that still affect. You'll be surprised at how much it still affects Islam today. Muhammad is born in Mecca. He's uh, an orphan. He's raised. He's part of the Qureshi tribe, one of the dominant tribes. He's raised by an uncle in Mecca. And when he is uh, about... The interesting thing you need to know about Mecca at the time, I want to show you the holiest site in Islam, and then I'll get back to the map. This is the Kaaba. There is a site in uh, Mecca 
that when Muhammad was born was considered to be, from ancient times, a very, very holy site. Uh, Muslims think that's where uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Ishmael, but instead God intervened. I know you read in the Bible that was Isaac, but in the Quran it's Ishmael. I think it happened here. They think that Adam first established this here as a place to worship. In other words, it goes way back. And when Muhammad was born, there were hundreds of gods that were worshipped here. All the different tribes, the Arabian tribes were worshipping different gods. There was a, a shrine to Mary and Jesus here. There's a shrine to the Jewish God here. There, there are hundreds of gods being born. This is still the holiest site in Islam, this Kaaba. But what Muhammad did was he looks at this situation and he, he realizes, you know, this is not our, our destiny. In other words, this is not how we started as descendants of Ishmael and children of Abraham, right? Ethnically descended from Abraham. This is not what Abraham believed. So when he's 40 year, about 40 years old, it's uh, 609 AD, he begins getting these visions Visions from that he says are from the angel Gabriel. And he gives him a vision and tells him to recite these things. And so he comes back and he speaks these revelations. That's Quran, recite. To, that is what the Quran is, is a series of 114 chapters, or called surahs, but it's basically 114 revelations given to Muhammad that he then spoke. And those happened over a period of time from about 610 until he died in 632 A.D., so for about 22 years. So when he's 40 years old, he gets his first revelation, and he realizes this is not right. There's one true God, the God of Abraham, and these Arabic tribes are worshiping hundreds of gods. And so what Muhammad sets out to do is he sets out to restore the religion of Abraham. So Islam is a religion, and Muhammad's understanding is it's not a new religion. It's not a different religion. I'm going to go back and restore the religion of Abraham, the worship of the one true God, and in Arabic, the word God is Allah. So for Muslims, they don't think they're worshiping a different God than Abraham did. They don't think they're worshiping a different God than the Jews worship or than the Christians worship. Muhammad was going to restore, out of all this paganism of the time, the worship of the one true God, the way Abraham worshipped him. And he thought Gabriel is giving him these visions, and he would then recite these visions. And that's what the Quran basically is, are the visions that were given to him. So one of the sources of conflict comes about with Islam is the belief that if this is the same God, but the Jews and the Christians have perverted the revelation from God and are worshiping God incorrectly. In other words, when you read the Quran, it has a lot of the Bible stories in the Old Testament, but they're a little different. And so Muslims would say the Jews have perverted the Old Testament. They look at the New Testament and they say, Jesus is a prophet, but you Christians think he's a son of God, and that's heresy. So for Muhammad, he thought that he was restoring the original uh, worship of Abraham, his father. And so the early revelations, so what he does is he begins from 610 
on to about 622 in Mecca, he begins to preach this. He begins to say, look, I've got a revelation from God. There's one true God, and here's what he told me to say. And he begins to preach that. And he begins to get some followers. And it begins to hurt business. Because in Mecca, they made money from everybody coming there, everybody of any religion coming there to the Kaaba to worship their gods. It's a great, thriving tourist business. Well, Muhammad starts to get some followers and says, yeah, you know what, this isn't right. And Muhammad, the early shuras, the early revelations, very much reflect his heart for the powerless and the oppressed. And you'll see in the early revelations a concern for social justice, that God does not want orphans and widows to be oppressed. God does not want injustice in society. So you see a lot of that in the early revelations of this time period. And so he begins to preach that. People begin to, to believe that in Mecca. And it begins to hurt business, and he's driven out. And so he flees from Mecca to Medina. That is the beginning of the Muslim calendar. It's in 622, so uh, when he's about 52 years old, He's rejected by the Arabs and sent out. Now he has a time period of hostility over the next eight years. In other words, he's beginning to unify these tribes around this new religion. He continues to get these revelations. But now the revelations change a little bit. The revelations are not in order in the Quran, by the way. But Islamic scholars have kind of through research, published what they believe are the order of these. And you, I, this is really important, and it's going to come up in both of our lessons about Islam. The early revelations to Muhammad sound very different than the later revelations. The ones when he was in Mecca were very much about justice and the unity of humanity, and everybody worshiped the one true God. When he goes to Medina and he begins to have conflict, uh, there are battles, they begin to, he begins to unify the tribes and begins to form an army. Then they begin uh, to change a little bit. They begin to come, how are you going to deal with the non-believers? How are you going to govern the body of believers? And there's this word uh, in Arabic called the ummah. The ummah is just, think church, kind of. The body of people who believe. And we are all together in that. In other words, because they shared a belief in Allah, the one true God, they were the body of believers. And the word Muslim means those who submit, meaning those who submit to the one true God. And so these, this ummah, these body of believers in what Muhammad was saying and Allah, the one true God, were called Muslims, the people who submit to God. And so they begin to form this community. Now the revelations, the different chapters of the Quran, become a little more full of conflict. How are you going to deal with those who are fighting against you? What about those people in Mecca that don't believe and they're still worshiping a lot of different gods? Well, over the next eight years, between 622 and 630, uh, several things happen with Muhammad, but fundamentally he is a, a politically very astute because he binds together a lot of those Arabian, warring Arabian tribes, and he ends up in 630 back on the doorstep of Mecca and says, hey, I'm back, and you didn't believe before, so now I give you a choice. You see this army? You can believe or you can die. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? And from that time on, Islam spread not only in the sense of a religion, but also in the sense of an army, of a political movement bursting out of the Arabian Peninsula. And we'll talk about that some more in a minute.
So he comes back to Mecca in 630. He dies in 632. And then we'll talk about his successors. But in a nutshell, what you see with Islam, one thing you have to understand is Islam sees a kinship with the Jews on a religious basis and a kinship with the Christians. In fact, in the Quran, they're called the people of the book, meaning the Jews and the Christians both share a belief in the Bible, the revelation from God. Muslims believe the Old Testament is indeed a revelation from God. They believe the Jews have perverted pieces of it. They believe that the New Testament is indeed a revelation from God about a prophet named Jesus Christ. They believe the Christians have misunderstood Jesus and worship him as a god instead of the prophet that he is. But they do see a kinship as worshiping the same god, and so they're called the people of the book. And so they're dealt with a little differently than the pagans, people that don't even believe in the one true God. Okay? That's in a nutshell how Islam started. So you have the conflict of thinking they have the same God. You have the conflict of the legacy of Abraham. They believe they have the rightful legacy of Abraham, the right way to worship God like Abraham did, not a corrupted way like the Jews or the Christians do. Well, what happened after Muhammad dies? What happens to Islam? Very interesting. We're just going to look at the first few caliphs. A caliph is a successor, is a ruler, uh, uh, is the name. But here's what happened after Muhammad dies. They have this large group of believers. They're well-armed. They have a vision. They have an Arabic identity. In other words, they not only have a unifying religion, they're unified politically as well. They see themselves as an Arab people and nation as well as Muslims. And that's one of the key things of Islam, and you're seeing it today. This is what ISIS believes, by the way, is that your politics and your religion are the same thing. In other words, there ought to be one worldwide caliphate. In other words, one worldwide political entity of all Muslims. Not nations, not Muslim nations, one entity. That's what there was at this time in history. When Muhammad dies, they're the Arabian people, and they are the Muslims, and it's the same group of people. But very quickly, a dispute breaks out on how to pick a successor, and there are two points of view. Muhammad has a cousin named Ali who marries his daughter, so becomes his son-in-law, who is related to him, a guy named Ali. But the Arabic tribes, that's not how they've traditionally picked their leaders. When a tribal leader died, their son or their relative didn't necessarily become the tribal leader. They would have a council called a sunnah, a tribal council, and they'd pick the next leader. So a dispute arose. Well, we are a nation, so let's get our sunnah together and let's pick our next president, if you will. Let's pick our next leader. Who's going to be Muhammad's successor, the caliph, the successor to Muhammad? But wait a minute, they said, this is a religion. And so the way it works with prophets is Ali is related to Muhammad. He was one of the very first people who ever believed in Muhammad, that he was a prophet of God. He should be that. The people who thought that were called the Shi'at Ali, the party that supported Ali. Well, while Ali was over at the funeral home getting Muhammad ready to be buried, 
The other guys have their little council, their little sunnah, and they pick a guy named Abu Bakr. Ali comes popping out and they go, hey, we got a new leader. He goes, what? What are you talking about? So his choice then is to be divisive and fight or to say, okay. Ali says, okay, we'll do it your way. And so the first caliph is Abu Bakr. That's an interesting name, by the way. You probably remember it from the news. There are two people, uh, infamous people, who have that name. The leader of Boko Haram, and we'll talk about them more next time because uh, I want to bring all the radical elements together so you can tell who are all these radical players. And we'll talk about that in our next lesson. Uh, the leader of Boko Haram, Abu Bakr. Leader of ISIS, Abu Bakr. That's a, that's a significant name, by the way. That's the first successor of Muhammad. So he's the first caliph. And both of them are interested in a caliphate. In other words, a unifying of all the Muslim people. The, uh, con the next conflict that you see coming up here is the idea, and this is a conflict even within Islam, is you have certain people in Islam that think that the successors, political succession and religious succession are two different things. Like you can have imams, this is the way Sunni Islam works, you can have your imams and so forth and they're your priests, but you're gonna have a president of your country. For example, the Sunni nations, and I'll tell you more about the Sunnis in a minute, those who see it this way, Sunni nations are governed a variety of ways. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni nation, they have a king. Turkey, a Sunni nation, they have a parliament. Indonesia, Sunni nation, they're de democratic. In other words, various different governments. Iran, Shiite, who runs Iran? The clerics, the Ayatollah. In other words, the religion is the same as the nation. And that is the original idea. That is the way it works out. Well, after Abu Bakr dies, Ali says, well, surely this time I'm going to be the caliph. No, they stick him in the back again. They get a guy named Umar. He's a general. Umar expels, by the way, all the Jews and Christians out of the Arabian Peninsula. And since that time, they have not liked anybody on that holy land of the Arabian Peninsula other than uh, Muslims. And today, non-Muslims can't go to the holy sites in Saudi Arabia. In fact, if you remember during the Gulf War, when we put troops in Saudi Arabia, not in Mecca or Medina, around the holy sites, just having non-Muslims in Saudi Arabia was a big deal to the Muslim countries. That was very offensive to them. Umar back in uh, 634 A.D., cast the Jews and the Christians out. Well, after Umar dies, Ali's waiting. Nope, get another guy named Uthman. Uthman was a, just a political choice. Uthman is famous because he's the person who took all those verbal recitations of Muhammad that people had heard and been repeating and had them written down, put it in a book so that you could buy it on Amazon. Okay, Uthman is the one who's, who's considered to be responsible for the physical Quran ever being written down because with Muhammad it was simply oral. It's something that he recited. Well, after Uthman dies, finally Ali becomes uh, the caliph, the successor. To the Shia Muslims, he's really the first legitimate caliph. To the Sunnis, he's the fourth caliph. Okay? This is how succession is gone. And at this time in history, the leader of Islam and the leader of the Muslim state, same person. Uh, let's go ahead and talk for a second about the uh, Sunni-Shiite split, and then we'll do some questions. 
because this is a good time to tell you how that huge split inside Islam, and that plays out in some interesting ways today. So let me just give you the short story of how that worked. So Ali dies. He has two sons. Well, the Shiites, those who said, hey, I'm a party of Ali, and you know what? Now that Ali's not the caliph, let's pick one of his sons to be the caliph. Well, the Sunnis, the Sunnah, the ones who say, no, we pick it the way we traditionally have, said, no, 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 forget that. We're going we're gonna to do it uh, the traditional way. We're just going to pick a leader. Well, by this time, Islam has exploded under these caliphs militarily outside the Arabian Peninsula. They have conquered all the Middle East. They've conquered Egypt. I mean, they, they have conquered a tremendous amount of land, and it's basically become a Muslim or die. And so you've got a lot of Muslims, and you've conquered a lot of land, and you begin to have political factions. And so one of these political factions of Sunni Muslims, according to tradition, poisons Ali's first son. First son is named Hassan. His second son, Hussein, is on his way to a place called Karbala, this is in Iraq today, to get an army to go fight the Sunni Muslims and say, no, I'm the legitimate successor to my father. Well, it turns out this Syrian army, this is a group of Sunnis from Syria, catch him at Karbala before he reaches his troops, and they besiege him. And they cut off all their water, and they say, you need to submit and agree that we're going to be the next caliph that you're not. Give up your rights to this. Well, Hussein, that's the second son, won't do it. And so there's this, just this epic story of struggle and suffering and his faithfulness to not give in to these evil other Muslims who are trying to get him to do something wrong. And finally, there's a battle, and they're wiped out. Hussein, his infant son, they just, they're wiped out by these overwhelming numbers. So it's Muslims fighting Muslims for the supremacy of the caliphate. That happened in 680 AD. So this isn't long after Muhammad. You've got a lot of stuff happening early on. But in 680 AD, in Karbala, Hussein is martyred by the Sunni Muslims. That incident is still remembered every year. In fact, every year, about 20 million Shiite Muslims make a pilgrimage to Karbala to remember how treacherous the Sunni Muslims were to murder Ali's son. That makes it awkward at Thanksgiving around the table, you know, between the Sunnis and the Shiites. And so today, you will see great tension. There are some theological differences, but this is the fundamental tension between the Sunnis and the Shiites. Still today, Iran, largely Shiite, Iraq, ruled by Sunnis, those two nations had a nine-year war back in the 80s with each other. You may remember this. And so you see that tension. It goes back to this time period. It goes back to 680 AD. And every year, you'll see a pilgrimage. And by the way, every year, you'll see some of those pilgrims killed by Sunni radicals and blown up, and you'll see the shrines in Karbala, the Shiite shrines, occasionally bombed by Sunni Muslims. So you see this tension inside Islam, and it goes all the way back to this time period in history. Uh, this is why, by the way, uh, talking about the different nations, let's put this map back up, because now I want to show you the different colors of green. The light green are, are Sunni 
Muslim countries, the dark green are Shiite. And so the largest Shiite is in Iran. Iran is a Shiite Muslim nation, predominantly, and they are ruled as a theocracy. That's why, by the way, because of the tensions that Iran becoming nuclear, if you stop and thought about it from a Muslim point of view, hey, that's good. That'll make us more powerful to fight our enemies, right? The West, the non-Muslims. But the Sunnis aren't crazy about that. Saudi Arabia has no interest in Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Why? Because the Sunnis and the Shiites might hate the U.S. more than each other, but there's a long history of conflict there as well. Does that make sense? So you see that even inside Islam, you have these tensions uh, one against another. And that explains uh, some of the reasons that you can sometimes form coalitions. You're going to see a coalition come about in the current situation. And it'll be interesting to watch the coalition, how it comes about to see if you have both Shiite and Sunni nations working together to see if you'll, have, you'll find Saudi Arabia very interested in opposing Iran, but you're not likely to see Saudi Arabia send troops to fight other Muslims. And so they, on the one hand, have the bond of being fellow Muslims, but they also have the tensions of being, of being Sunni and being Shiites. Well, let me pause there and uh, to see if that makes sense. The two ideas that I really want you to get out of that is the idea of a caliphate, because the Arab idea, by the way, is Arabs' nationalism. Egypt is an Arab country, and it wants to stay a country. And so does Saudi Arabia. It wants to be a country. But in Islam, there's this long tradition of a caliphate where nations don't matter. It's just all the Muslims together in one big nation. And you see that tension. And you're seeing that tension with ISIS. As a matter of fact, ISIS wants the caliphate. And the surrounding countries are like, hey, we're Muslim too, but we're Arab nations and we like our nation. Then you have the religious Sunni and Shia split that causes tension. So even within Islam, there are forces of tension against each other. Questions? Um, how do current non-radical Muslims view the people of the book? Yeah, well, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. So I'll do, how do current Muslims view the people of the book? What I'd like to do is answer this question. And it'll, I think it'll answer the question you're asking is, is, is Islam inherently violent towards non-believers, Jews, Christians, or others, or is it not? And the way you answer that question if, as a Muslim depends on how you're going to treat Jews and Christians. But I'll answer that in just a second. I have another question along that same line um, about the, violent, the more violent passages of the Koran being later on and uh, the belief of Muslims in subrogation. And that, that means the later and more violent passages are considered to be the ones to be followed. We'll talk about abrogation as well. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Since Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet, do they not believe that he ever proclaimed himself to be the son of God? Good question. Muslims believe Jesus is a prophet. They very much do not believe he ever said, I am the son of God. They think that's heresy, and they do not think that Jesus said that. They think that that's a corruption of the scriptures that the Christians have made, a misunderstanding or a corruption of the scriptures. That's exactly right. They do not believe that Jesus ever said that. Um, do you they don't think he was crucified either. That, that would be crazy to them. They think that that's not accurate in the New Testament. 
Do you want to talk about ISIS now or later? Later, okay. if we can. Actually, it, it may be next time before we talk about, because I want to talk about the radical Islam. We'll introduce that now, but our time is such that I'd like to spend a whole session on who are the radical Muslim players? Because you need a scorecard to figure this out. And I think we'll talk about that. We'll just focus on terrorism and radical Islam. Okay. So where do the Kurds fit into the Muslim world? Uh, Kurds fit in as ethnically different, um, but Muslims. They are upset. They're the only people that they, after World War I, this one united group of people, and when I say united group of people, they speak the same language, they're all related, I mean they're ethnically the same, four countries. I mean that's that whole after World War I, they kind of arbitrarily split this up. The Kurds live in four different countries. Well, they want their own country, and so there's some nationalism going on there. So in one sense, they have a kinship with the Muslim world because they're fellow Muslims, but in the other, they're like, yeah, but we want our own country. And so that's yet again another of the inner tensions. If you get nothing else out of this lesson than this, Islam is not just one group of people that all agree. The Arabs aren't just all in lockstep with each other. Even inside the Arab world and the Muslim world, there are these tensions. And that's why in the modern Middle East, you see some weird little alliances. I've already quoted this one because it's really recent. But in the latest Hamas bombing, rocket firing into Israel, Egypt and Israel both teamed up to form the ceasefire because Israel, of course, doesn't want Hamas bombing them. But even though they're fellow Muslims, Egypt doesn't want Hamas doing that either. It doesn't suit their national interests. And so you have a lot of different things at play. Okay. Um, if Saudi Arabia hates the United States, why do they sell us oil and cooperate in other ways? Saudi Arabia is uh, as good an ally as we have in the Middle East. So Saudi Arabia doesn't hate the United States. They're Muslims. They're not that happy with us. But we have a good relationship with, this, with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. They're probably the biggest allies. Uh, they buy a lot of military equipment from us because they know that, frankly, my neighbors are pretty dangerous. And they may be Muslims, but they're dangerous. And so we sell them a lot of uh, military equipment. We have good relationship with them. We're sort of like their big brother, like, you know, be careful about beating me up because I got a big brother. Uh, they are advocates for us in the region to a certain extent. They're walking that fine line of they're not crazy about ISIS at all. I mean, they don't want to be taken over by ISIS. They didn't want to be taken over by the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So they've got some national interests. So on the one hand, they want some help suppressing those violent and uh, the unstable elements of Islam, but they can't be seen as all of Islam as having Muslims fighting Muslims. So they're always in a difficult position. That's why when you see this coalition, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of coalition the United States can put together. Because all those nations are caught between the radical elements of Islam, but the, you know what, it's not a good thing for Muslim to be fighting Muslim. And so they're caught in that tension. Saudi Arabia is probably as good an ally as we have in that region. Okay, so is what's happening today a setup for the prophecy in Revelation? Yeah, and that's what I, and I hate to keep pushing things forward. It's just, it's hard to explain what's going on unless we know a little of the history. This is the third lesson. The next lesson will focus just on terrorism. And in the last lesson, I want to focus on the, what's, where's this thing likely to go and how does it tie into prophecy? 
not just Christian prophecy, how does it tie into Islamic prophecy as well? Because they've got their own end game figured out. And we'll talk about that in the fifth week. Right now, I'd like to finish our time on this to, you've got the idea of the caliphate and some tensions that brings in. Arab nationalism, Islamic caliphate, but heads. Sunni and Shia, long-standing rivalries, right? And hostility, they fought wars, they bomb each other's uh, sites as well. The question then I'd like to finish with, because this sets the stage for how can you get to radical Islam? Is that the face of Islam, or is peaceful Islam the real face of Islam? Well, let's talk about it. One of the keys is the different chapters of the Quran. And I very much think that the Quran sounds different in the early years than it does in the later years. And that has to do with what's going on in Muhammad's life and in the life of those early believers. Originally, you see a lot of things like this. The themes of the unity of God, uh, the prophethood of Muhammad, the idea of judgment, the idea of unity with the people of the book. Here's an example out of chapter 29. Argue only in the best way with the people of the book except with those of them who act unjustly, say, we believe in what was revealed to us and in what was revealed to you. Our God and your God is one. We are devoted to him. What's that sound like? That's an early shura. It says, look, we're all people of the book. You just need to wise up and listen to Muhammad, the last great prophet. In other words, we worship the same God. You guys have distorted the scriptures, but no hard feelings. Come on over and agree with us. And so you see this kind of peaceful coexistence kind of language in the early shuras. Uh, here's another one. This is the Shura 109, very short. Say, disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship, and you do not worship what I worship. I will never worship pagan gods, and you will never worship what I have. You have your religion, and I have mine. What does that sound like? That doesn't sound very warlike, does it? It's kind of like, hey, I think you're wrong, but I'm not going to worship what you do, and if you don't worship what I do, okay. And you see that in some of the early shuras. And so it is possible to read the Quran and say, this is a peaceful document. If you hold on to those passages and others like them, you can say Islam is inherently peaceful. Now, historically, that's a hard argument because it's spread by the sword. But you can look at this and you see Muhammad's heart. You'll see passages about justice and taking care of widows and orphans and, and getting rid of injustice and getting rid of all these false gods. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Quran that we would agree with. I mean, and not because it's in the Quran, but we'd say, yeah, the Bible says that too. That makes sense? So if you look at it this way, particularly the early shuras, you'll see that. Later, as you begin to see uh, some rules some laws of commerce and war and peace and who to fight and how to fight. Here's one from a later time uh, in chapter 2. And fight in Allah's cause against those who wage war against you, but do not commit aggression. Now, this is interesting, is that if you're attacked, fight viciously against the unbelievers, but you cannot be the aggressor. Slay them wherever you may uh, come upon them and drive them away from wherever they drove you away, for oppression is even worse than killing. Well, that's a little more middle ground, isn't it? By the way, that's the kind of thought that Muslims now think about Israel. We are the victims of aggression. It was our land, we Palestinians were living there, and then all of a sudden these Western powers and the Jews come in and say, no, it's our historic land. From their point of view, remember the quote I showed you to the Egyptian army in 67? We're gonna go fight against the Israeli aggressors 
and they would point to a passage like this and say, we're not uh, starting this war. You have taken our land, and so Muhammad says, we should fight you viciously. So from their point of view, it's perfectly just to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth because Israel is the one that stole their land. So this is not quite so peaceful as the earlier one, is it? Let's move on a little bit to uh, a little later verse. This is called the sword verse. This one's kind of famous, so I hate to cherry pick it, but you get, you're going to get the idea. It says, wherever you encounter the idolaters, that's everyone who does not believe in Allah, the one true God, in the way Muhammad taught him. Kill them, seize them, besiege them, wait for them at every lookout post. But if they repent, maintain the prayer and pay the alms, in other words, do a couple of the things they're supposed to do, let them go on their way, for Allah is forgiving and merciful. Now that sounds much more aggressive, doesn't it? That says, wherever you find the non-believers, kill them, seize them, besiege them, wage jihad. And I'm going to talk to you about jihadism in our next lesson as kind of part of the roots of why this is just. So what I've shown you from the earlier to the later shuras, and then here's one of the last. This is in 631. It's a year before Muhammad died. Fight those of the people of the book. Now we're talking about Jews and Christians who do not truly believe in Allah and the last day. Well, guess who does? None of us. Christians don't. We blaspheme. We think Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, well, you clearly, you may be people of the book, but you're blasphemers, and so we're commanded to fight you. Who do not forbid what Allah and his messenger have forbidden, and who do not obey the rule of justice until they pay the tax. So there's a, there's a tax that basically you could live peacefully in Islamic lands, but you have to pay an extra tax for them to tolerate the Jews and the Christians to live there. But you can argue this, and matter of fact, radical Islam does argue this, is that because Christians and Jews have perverted the true faith, you're not even okay to live here at all. You have now become idolaters and enemies, and we should attack you. So you see the range. Uh, this isn't scholarly by any means, but I do want you to understand this idea very much. There is a range here, and I find it to be very tied into the chronology of Islam. And so you can point to verses in the Quran that say, this is a peaceful religion. And there are people who practice Islam in a way that you would consider much more peaceful. You can also find verses that will justify wiping Israel off the face of the earth in the Quran. And so it depends on how you see it. There's a, a philosophy called abrogation, which basically says we're going to interpret the later shuras to be more authoritative than the early ones, which would lead to more radical Islam. There's another philosophy of interpretation that says, no, we're going to kind of average it all out, which would lead toward a milder, more peaceful form of Islam. And so there are big disagreements within Islam, not just Sunni and Shiite, but what is our obligation to wage jihad or war against people who are unbelievers? And there are disagreements around that as well. Make sense? So is it inherently violent or not? depends on which part you read and how you want to read it. But you will find verses that could be read either way. Question? So do Muslims disregard the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament completely? Okay. Yeah, let me answer this carefully. Muslims believe in the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, and they think that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. 
but not exactly the way you understand that term. We think of the Messiah as the promised one of God who is going to come and he is the son of God. He's divine. He's going to die on a cross and save us from our sins. Whoa, back up the truck, say the Muslims. I was with you with the Messiah part, that Jesus was going to come with another revelation from God, but he is not the son of God. He did not die on a cross. You Christians made this stuff up. So they do believe he is the Messiah. They just don't think the Messiah is what we think it is. Does that make sense? They don't accept those parts of the New Testament. But if you ask a Muslim, is Jesus a prophet and is he the Messiah? They go, oh yeah. But they don't mean the same thing by that. They don't accept certain parts of those prophecies. So they agree in part, but not in total. That's a good question. Um, weren't most of the 9-11 terrorists from Saudi? Yeah, Saudi Arabia, and we'll talk about this in terrorism, is interesting. In, very interesting country. Actually, a lot of countries are kind of this way. Saudi Arabia uh, is a Sunni nation, but they have roots in a fairly strict and somewhat radical sect of Sunni Islam. In other words, there are different sects of Sunnis as well, uh, called Wahhabism, and I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit about that. And they fund Sunni, they fund a lot of Sunni radical uh, Muslims but not to overthrow their country. And so, yes, they do fund certain elements of radical Islam. They do not participate in that. And so, for example, uh, Osama bin Laden is a Saudi. Osama bin Laden found safe haven in Saudi Arabia for some time until he turned on Saudi Arabia and said, look, you guys really aren't even true Muslims either. Hey, Al-Qaeda, we need to overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia. Well, at that point, hey, friendship only goes so far, right? And so he gets cast out of Saudi Arabia. So it's a little bit complicated. Again, you have the nationalism, the Arab nationalism, versus some of the Islamic purity. In other words, we're all going to be Muslims together, and we're all going to be radical. So you see that conflict happening there. But yes, Saudi Arabia has funded a lot of radical Islam, certain radical Sunni groups, but not the ones that want to overthrow Saudi Arabia. Um, are you familiar with Tikiwa? I'm sorry? Tikiwa. Tikiwa. Yeah. The I'm familiar with the term. That it's okay to lie for the purposes of Allah. Yeah, I'll okay. talk to you about that a little bit. Well, we probably won't get into that too much, but there is a principle in Islam that anything you want to do to deceive the disbelievers is fine. Lie. Makes it, makes it hard to know who the peaceful ones are. Makes it hard to know who the peaceful ones are, yeah. That, that is a principle... Uh, a Muslim principle that it's okay to lie to the unbelievers. Okay, so tell us a little bit about how Islam managed to spread to such a huge portion of the world. Islam spread in a couple of, of ways. Uh, they have a lot of kids. I mean, that's just, that's just part of it. I mean, if you look at the population growth, even in the European countries that are not predominantly Muslim, Muslims in European countries are growing at an alarming rate, so much so that both, uh, for example, Germany and France have begun to understand Islam as a potential threat to their multicultural system. England is starting to understand that as well. In a more liberal, open society, if you have a lot of kids and your population growth is really fast, it's just a matter of time before you have huge political power. And so there's some concerns. They grow partly because they have a lot of kids. But to, not begging the question, there's also the idea that there is an idea here uh, that's 
in my view as a Christian, partly true. There is one true God, and his name is God, or Allah in Arabic just means God. And Abraham, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Jesus Christ came from God. I mean, we agree on some of this, and that this God wants justice, and this God wants right in the world. Some of that is very true, and I think it's very compelling. So there are pieces of Islam as a religion that are partly true and very compelling. And then also, Islam spread in a very militaristic, nationalistic way. It spread through conquest as well. And so I think Islam has been successful partly because of the ideology is somewhat appealing. I mean, some of it's not. You look at ISIS and you say, do I want any part of that? Do I want any part of the Taliban? No. But historically speaking, there have been times when Islam has been very good economically. It's been relatively peaceful. It's not always been like that, and not all Muslims are like that. So there's been some appeal to that, but it's basically spread through conquest. So I think that's why Islam has been as successful, in a nutshell, as it has historically. So if you go back and you look at the map that had all the green area on it, uh -huh. and, and we look at where it started on the Arabian Peninsula, right. and then the fact that it has spread so far through Africa and part of the Asian continent. Indonesia, absolutely. Okay, was that done with the convert or die mentality? Yeah, that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration to say it's always convert or die, but it's far more militaristic than sending missionaries. You understand what I'm trying to say? It's not the way you think it worked. I'm not telling you there aren't people who think Islam should be spread by missionaries, people who go and peacefully convince you that this is true. That happens some. That is not substantially the way Islam has spread. That is hugely substantially the way Christianity is spread. There are huge differences there. But I don't want to paint just one color. There are, Islam has spread some that way, but typically not. It would be an exaggeration to say it's always convert or die, but it would also be a, quite an exaggeration to say that has not been a motif of Islam historically. It, it certainly has. Good questions. Uh, putting it to you know, some lessons out of this, I just, what I'd really like you to get out of this is you begin to see the complexity of what's happening here, and there's one more layer we want to put on, but already you'll start to see things click. It's not as simple as Muslims, versus Israel. It's not even as simple as the Arabs versus Israel. Those enmities are real and they exist. But as you see events happening, you're going to see tensions within the Islamic world. Nationalism versus the caliphs. Why might Saudi Arabia at least want to give money to a coalition that will stop ISIS? Because even though we're fellow Sunni Muslims, I really don't want you overrunning my country. Will they give troops? Now that's the interesting thing, isn't it? You see the dilemma that they're in? So you have nationalism versus the caliph. You see the Sunnis and the Shiites. The entire Sunni world is very much afraid of Iran, the Shiite nation who has its own ideas about things and has a real grudge to settle. And so you see those tensions and you'll watch the Western world tend to want to exploit those fault lines, if you will, to make some entry. Because you should ask yourself, how in the world could the United States, for example, and Israel have any chance whatsoever of peace? Well, if Islam was all united and just one, one color, and if the Arabs and the non-Arab Muslims were all together all the time, it would be impossible. 
But what you tend to see in diplomacy is where are the fault lines? Who's having trouble getting along with whom? Maybe politically we can take advantage of that. Tonight in the president's speech and in general in all of Mideast diplomacy, that's what you see happening. How can we exploit the fault lines within Islam and within the ethnicities to get together? Make sense? Watch as that happens. In our next lesson, I just want to tell you, where did terrorism come from? It's actually fairly recent. And who are all the players? And what is it that they want? And why are they? Syria is a great case. Syria, just meditate on this for a minute. You've got a government in Syria. It's an Islamic country, but it has a terrible dictator. Right? So it's an Arab country, Muslim country, brutal dictator in Assad. You've got Al-Qaeda, right, fighting to overthrow him because he's not a good enough Muslim and part of the Arab Spring, and you're not a very good leader. And in the meantime, you have some other Sunni Muslims like Al-Qaeda, ISIS coming in and saying, hey, I don't really care if you're a good ruler, and I don't really care if Al-Qaeda, you guys want to have an Islamic state. We actually just want to unite all of Islam, so we're going to kill all of you. Who do you support in that deal, right? We'll talk about that next time, so I'll see you next time.